0: everyone. Welcome to Brunch with Brent. It's my pleasure to be joined today by Brandon Bruce. Uh, Brandon, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Today's going pretty well. Yeah, well that's good to hear. Um, we got connected uh, by a few friends of ours in the Jupyter Broadcasting Network uh, because you're the Director of Customer Support at Linux Academy. Correct. And I would imagine... That holds quite a bit of responsibilities. <laughs> At least the title sounds like it does.
1: Yeah. Uh, I Right now, the team is uh, seven people. Uh, I have two in Australia, one in Tennessee, and then the rest are all in uh, Texas with me. Uh, and we manage all the day-to-day operations for the support team uh, for Linux Academy.
0: Nice. I would imagine every single day is a little bit different for, for your team. Uh, that's kind of the nature of support, isn't
1: it? Oh, it's it's a very reactive. So grab bag
0: is probably the best description of the problems we see. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine there's some repetition, but yeah, you just like all sorts of stuff. And so are you dealing with customers directly or is it internal support? Is it a little bit of both? So up until roughly two weeks ago, we handled both internal
1: and external support. The internal support just got moved over to an IT operations team. So we are getting used to having nothing but external now.
0: Right. So a little bit of relief there, but at least allows you to to concentrate your time a little bit. Because um, you've got a little bit of, of two worlds. You've got a a crew of people face-to-face with you where you're located, it sounds like, and also some remote staff. Is it kind of a completely different dynamic working with those, or is it working out pretty well? How does that work? So everyone technically
1: works remote. We have an office here in San Antonio that we go into twice a week just to kind of see each other and have some face time, but for the most part, we all work remote. So, I've gotten used to nothing but Slack calls and Zoom calls in order to talk to people.
0: <laughs> and how is that for you? Like, is, is that a nice rhythm or would you prefer a little bit more time? Because I know many of us uh, in the industry, you know, we're doing a lot of remote time now, but there are some challenges that come with that too. It's weird. I've had this discussion with
1: other people and I've found that remote work for people in a transactional business like support where I get a ticket, I work the ticket, I go to the next one. Remote is perfect for them, as long assuming everybody has a work ethic. That's got to be announced up front. But for people in that transactional setting, they tend to manage themselves very closely because they're afraid, subconsciously, consciously, that they're going to lose that privilege of working from home if they slack off. So they're always hustling. Whereas when you have people who are, project base and you say, all right, you've got three months to finish this. Well, they may slack off for two months because, hey, as long as I get it done by the third month, we're all good.
0: Hmm. So these like micro projects seem to lend well to that remote stuff. And it sounds to me like being part of a team is is likely a really big part of that because you want to make sure that you're doing well for your team as well, that you're not letting anybody down and or forcing some work on someone else. So if you've got the right team around you, that sounds like a pretty powerful environment.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of describe it as a, an oligarchy. You know, <laughs> I make all the final calls, but realistically they, it's very democratic because if they don't like it, they're not going to do it. So I, I've got to make sure that the, it's balanced and that they understand any of the choices I make uh, for the team. They understand the benefit the cost and the benefit for it. So you may not like it, but hey, this is the payoff if you
0: stick with it. Has anyone joined your team who has never done remote before? Like, is there some mentorship that happens there or some kind of adjustments for someone like that?
1: Three of my employees uh, came from another large uh, hosting provider here in San Antonio. And for the most part, they worked in a major office. So for them, they were ready to be at home. They were ready to have some of that freedom back because they already knew they could do the work. They just hated having to deal with some of the people that they dealt with on a day-to-day. And it's not to say they were asocial or, or didn't want to be around people. They're actually great people people. But you have those, that, that office feeling where you wonder, is somebody standing right next to me? Are they going to come bother me? Do they want to talk to me? Because I've got work to do.
0: You know, I can totally relate to that because I'm a photographer primarily, and um, so I'm working from home all the time. Well, I say from home, but I'm always traveling, and so <laughs> the home ends up being <laughs> wherever I am. But <laughs> uh, but a home base, right? That's away from a, a standard sort of large office. And the reason I I'm asking those questions is it's such a curious thing to me. Like I've lived in that world quite a lot and have had to learn how to do it myself and, you know, have tripped along the way. Um, and, and yet I've heard repeatedly from, you know, employees who are used to the sort of corporate environment like that, how once you figure out how to be, you know, consistently productive on your own, that freedom can just increase productivity and happiness. And that sense of flexibility too is, is sounds really essential.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, my background was actually as a cook and chef for almost two decades before I ever got into tech. (laughs) Nice. And management, aside from managing kitchens, which is another animal all unto itself, I'd never been in a full-on corporate-style management role. So I had to teach myself analytics. I'd never done it. It, I've done, like, cost-benefit stuff, for like inventory control, but never gone, okay, I need to find metrics that show that my employees are doing a good job. What metrics are important? How do we know what is good? What is bad? What's good data, bad data? Those were questions I never had to ask before. And if I were in a corporate setting and all the floundering I went through trying to figure it out, I would have looked like an idiot, <laughs> but being able to hide in my, you know, living room and figure this out in the middle of the night, because that's when I decided I was going to work on it. Hey, it was, it was easy. It was more of a comfortable experience.
0: Do you feel like sometimes working when you're, your most optimal or, or at least when, you know, an idea really grabs you and you can just dive into it. Do you feel like that's an advantage as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. It actually helps a lot with having a worldwide team. You know, like I said, I have two guys in Australia who work for me, and that's because for them, what is a daytime shift is overnight for us. So I end up getting close to like a 24-7 coverage without having to have, you know, somebody up in the middle of the night. Oh, that's nice. But having to get used to the fact that I was going to have to meet with them at a time that was comparable for both of uh, both parties, took some getting used to, but I was like, hey, this is great though, because I can say, all right, today's going to be the day where uh, I can go out and go shopping at noon because I'm going to be working until midnight, so I'll just shift my hours around. And it having that flexibility is tremendous when you need to be able to think on your feet and the world doesn't revolve around the nine to five schedule.
0: Yeah, I could see how from the business perspective uh, that sort of flexibility uh, in support is like totally essential that that 24hour cycle I hadn't even thought of because we sort of think in these you know eight hour or or max 12 hour cycles but yeah I could see how having someone sort of on hand at any time especially with a you know how linux academy is is such a um, sort of web-based business where anybody can join from anywhere at any time I could see how that would really be quite essential.
1: Uh, it's, it's fascinating. I just, uh, you know, we were talking about analytics. I just got into using like Google Analytics to track our, it's basically our FAQ page. It's uh, We use Zendesk, so it's called a knowledge base, but I wanted to track which ones were most popular to see you know, where, where we could do better and where we are doing the best and got into messing with Google Analytics, having never messed with it before, and I was shocked at how much information was in there and found that while our student base is primarily uh North American, so uh excluding Mexico, so Canada and the United States are combined, I think 67, 68% of our student base. And the rest tends to be centered around uh India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Saudi Arabia, so the Middle Eastern countries have another good like 27%. I thought, okay, so that's what I should see when I look at the analytics. But looking at our FAQ pages, I found that it was almost inverted. The people in North America aren't going to the FAQ pages at all, but those in the Middle East are pouring over pages. Like I was able to track one guy who went through and read almost 60 articles that we'd written. Nothing that had anything to do with each other. Just reading articles. <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah, I was like, wow. I, I would have thought it would be, you know, where we have the most people, that's where the most people are going to our FAQ. No, it's it's the inverse. The those the other group really wants to know a lot, and they'll just sit there and read.
0: Wow. wow. Uh, do you feel like that speaks a little bit to like learning culture in different? places in the world because I you know what you've just described is also the opposite of what I would have thought like um, it almost tells a story that you could have never imagined unless you had that data which I suppose um, shows the strength of data but you think it's a cultural like a, a learning culture uh, difference or maybe I, I don't know what do you think th- any theories so I haven't got enough data to
1: prove my hypothesis. But the best one I've come up with is that if you know English as a second language or a third or fourth language, it is easier for you to go and read it and be able to look up the words that you don't know than it is for you to try and play with it and figure it out in a system that's written in English. If you go on and try and mess with a new program and all the buttons are in English or in this case, for us, let's say they're in Flemish, and you don't speak Flemish, so you're looking at going, okay, I don't know what that is. I might be able to figure that that means stop because it's red, but these, this company has written articles about their program, and if you go sit there and learn Flemish and try and translate as you go, you can learn it. That was That's the only thing I've come up with so far, that and possibly that it's just a different culture, that they are accustomed to going and reading in order to understand. Whereas in the more Western cultures, we have a quicker need to get the information. You know, if, if I don't get it in a couple of clicks, I'm not messing with it.
0: I think you're on to something, though, with that theory, because— uh, when you put it in the perspective you know of flipping the coin and playing with a tool that's in a completely different language, it sounds to me almost like learning what I'll call offline so not in a live environment um, so that you can sort of spend the time slowly understanding all of the concepts before you dive into the actual you know nitty gritty of doing it that would make a lot of sense to me um from the perspective of confidence, especially if it's a different language, right? You can wrap your head around a whole lot of concepts and the whole thing before you sort of dive in and, and poke around. So I, th- I think you're on to something there. One of the other big things we found out with this
1: was uh, we started mapping what pages people are going to the most. And we found that on a monthly basis, the most popular was one on how to connect to our hands-on labs. And I thought, well, why is that? I mean, that there are directions at every lab that tell you how to do it. Why do they need to come read this? And I mean, and we're talking like a magnitude of difference. Like in December, 9,000 unique people in unique IP addresses went and read the article that we had written in support on how to connect to hands-on labs. And the next closest thing was... Uh, it was like a description, uh, a comparison between what a cloud playground is and what cloud servers are. And it went from 9,000 for connecting to like 3,000. So three times less. Wow. And I was like, that's huge. Why is that? And I go and look at how the interface was written. So if you go to a lab, how the directions are written there are if you are unfamiliar with how to use things like, say, SSH or Putty, they're confusing. But you go to our article in the support FAQ, and we've got, like, diagrams and pictures and a a step-by-step walkthrough. And I was like, well, that explains it. If you're brand new and you don't understand, and somebody's already making a leap of logic for you saying, oh, you should know this before you start, yeah, you're going to go read another article on it.
0: It's almost like the data is telling you a whole bunch of stories that uh, how could that not be helpful for you and your team uh, to create better experiences, right? For the end user. It sounds like it allows you almost to like empathize with the person on the other, other end. Would you, does that feel accurate? I am a very
1: numbers driven, data driven person, even though I didn't understand it until I had the tools. Uh, And I started seeing parts of my personality really come out as I dug deeper into stuff. And I was like, this is what I need to know. I have always wanted to understand, but I didn't have the knowledge on how to collect data. And now I can sit here and go, okay, I feel that it should be this way. Let me see if the logic backs it up. It makes a world of difference, especially when you're talking about, you know, solving people's day-to-day problems. If you can understand where they're coming from first and why they have the problem in the first place, because, you know, it—it it is a flaw of working in support that eventually you get to, I wouldn't say a jaded place, but more of a callous place. Like you've, you've built up a reaction to seeing a similar question over and over. So you just get to a point where like, okay, these people just don't know what they're doing. Is it that is it that they don't know what they're doing or did you not teach them? Where is the real failing?
0: Yeah, interesting. I I feel like the data that you're diving into is telling you a story that's actually uh, sort of leading you to some hints at human nature almost. So it's it's curious, it's curious to me, those two worlds, because the data-driven world, you know, usually is super technical and stuff like that. But that's actually allowing you to, to see sort of the human element of it all, uh, which is fascinating. And like the example you just gave in those sort of calloused perspectives, if you've spent that much time and support, um, I could see how seeing it from the other side and just asking different questions with that data behind you would allow for quite a powerful transformation in the approach uh, that you take there. So that's that's really fascinating to me. Okay, so you said you do photography. I would compare it to
1: trying to explain shutter speed. For you, (laughs) I'm sure the idea of like, hey, if you leave the aperture open longer, yeah, you're going to overexpose the film. That just seems logical to you. But to somebody who's never messed with a camera and only knows if I click this button, it should do something, the idea of aperture is a huge thing. I, I had no idea that the lens stayed expo- you know, the, the film stayed exposed and the lens stayed
0: open longer. And if you grew up with only digital cameras, that idea is completely lost. It's a good example because, you know, often as professionals or people who've spent, you know, countless hours on a certain technology or in this example on, on learning cameras and stuff like for me, I, I don't even consciously think about using my camera anymore. It just sort of happens subconsciously. And the same is true of technology, right? Like for those of us who have spent years doing deep dives and learning this and are curious about it. um, Some of those simpler concepts can often get lost because, you know, we're not beginners anymore. So, In your position and your team's position, having that, that trying to maintain some sort of empathy for that beginner or someone who's new to a platform, that sounds pretty essential almost. It's
1: funny. The more we talk about this, I think back to how I got started really diving into customer issues and the way that they see problems. And I actually wrote a talk on it to try and put in words what I was thinking it was a bit tongue in cheek. It was called "How to Train Your Customers."
0: This is uh, this is the talk you gave at B sides uh, in San Antonio, right?
1: Yes. Oh, were you there?
0: Uh, I didn't, but I did get to see it. So uh, I I got to appreciate that sort of tongue in cheek approach that you take.
1: Oh yeah, no, but they,
0: I'm glad because now
1: I don't have to like fully explain everything. You get some of the reference points, <laughs> but uh, y- you do. You see, uh, regardless of what problem they're bringing to you you'll see these marked approaches on how the problem is presented. You know, you, you have people who will just go, uh, you know, your site is slow. How do you know it's slow? What are you comparing it to?
0: <laughs>
1: what does slow mean? Yeah. All these questions that come up as a support person, they don't occur to the person on the other side. They're just frustrated and they go, site is slow. I am mad. So you have to train them in the way in which you respond. Now, if you do what every single support person has done for years now and gone, you need to clear your cache and cookies, try resetting your router, it's gotta be your Wi-Fi. <laughs> you know, those cookie cutter responses, people become numb to them. So they'll start responding back. And that's what I notice is that people will pay attention to troubleshooting methods you use so that they can have validation that the problem is you. Well, what if you could turn that around? What if hey, uh by the way, I was you know troubleshooting your uh, your problem, and here are the tests I ran you know I ran you know uh an s trace on my own uh machine to see how fast things are or here are my ping tests you know whatever it was, and you show them those steps, would they start giving you that data back and we did a small test within our support team and found that on about 20% of the time they did they these repeat people that we found would start using these tests as if they were trying to show us off you know show us up and go uh uh-uh, uh it's still you look i did it this time i did these tests i'm like cool so this does work we can start training people to give us better data
0: what i gather from that story is almost that support or at least good support is a, a, sort of a team effort between you and the person, you know, with the complaint or the support issue, uh, and though they may not see it that way, you have to try to convince them somehow, maybe with a few different types of approaches, that, that that's actually the case because everyone wants a positive outcome, right? Uh, but it sounds like there's, depending on the person and the issue, there's a whole bunch of different ways to achieve that.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, you're always going to have people who just want something for free. Those people exist. That's a real thing. Okay. <laughs> but the way people view support as being cookie cutter in their responses, support has become cookie cutter in the way they view the people coming in. They assume everybody's out for something free. Well, they're not. But they don't know how else to get your attention if they don't go for the grandiose because we've become numb. We've become this self insulating group who are like, We've got to protect ourselves because you don't know how hard it is to do this day in and day out. You're right. But you kind of did it to yourself, too. And the only way to fix it is to change your behavior so they learn how to behave differently. And then we can all start getting along.
0: (laughs) Weird hippie thought. I like it. I like it. Um, How do you think that support fits into sort of the greater tech realm? You know, because you've got engineers, you've got, uh, you know, coders, you've got all that that so many different types of professions in there. But for you, where do, how do you feel like support fits in? I see
1: support in a unique way. I tell everyone on my team, if I see you on my team after three years, you better be taking my job <laughs> because this should totally be just the stepping stone. This should not be where you end. And that I think is what has really hurt support in The long run, there are some people who are genuinely good at it and they love doing it. But for the most part, it should be the stepping stone into something larger in tech. It should be that entry level job. Nobody wants to be the front desk guy forever. And if they do, you know it by the way that they come to work and they just glow and they're happy because they found the job for them. But how many support people do you see that look like they're dead on the inside? And it's because there is a lifespan, a shelf life for support. And it's about two to five years. So I tell them after three years, if you're not gunning for my job, you need to go. You You don't belong here anymore. Mm. You should have grown and I failed you somewhere. I want everyone on my support team to feel like they have a path somewhere. If it's, you know in development or, hey, you know what? I just really like the company, but I didn't have the skills to work in marketing yet. So I took what I could get. Cool. Let's get you working on how marketing works. I, I don't know anything about it, but let's go find out together.
0: I really like that approach. I would imagine as well, for anyone who's sort of aiming a little higher, you know, into marketing, for instance, to continue that example, I would imagine being in support um, gives you a connection to the end user and an understanding of the end user and of the product that maybe you don't necessarily get elsewhere. And I, I could see how that might be valuable um, in the long, long run. Yeah, I, I see support should always be
1: the megaphone <laughs> yeah. for, the, for the company so that they speak for the customer or the student or, you know, the client. Their job is really to go, hey, we have a problem here. What team do I have to reach out to? Okay, I need engineering. Engineering, please understand this part of the site is broken, and we have this many people who are upset about it. Or, hey, marketing, you sent out this email, and there were five misspellings in it, and we've got a bunch of tickets where people are upset because you can't spell the company name right, or whatever it is.
0: (laughs) I really like all of those perspectives. So, um, sounds like you're the right person for for being where you are right now. That sounds pretty good. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention quickly on on that topic is um, I read recently how Toby Lutke, who's uh, the Shopify CEO, I think a few times a week, just like sits down and takes a few support tickets, which I found fascinating because. Uh, It gives you, you know, of course he built that business from the ground up. So he's, he's gotten that connection with users previously, but he's continued that throughout. It sounds like having an understanding of sort of the, the entire scope of an organization, at least just a little bit, sounds like it's really informative for everybody.
1: We have a small lapse in time from my overnight guys to my morning guys. It's about four hours. So when I get in in the morning, the first thing I do is I go through the tickets that have not been sorted yet, and it gives me kind of an idea of what were they seeing last night and what can I expect to see this morning, and keep a pulse of what is
0: going on with the day-to-day business. Inevitably, gives you some perspective on uh, how everything's going, I would imagine. There have been a lot of, not issues,
1: but like events that we were able to see ahead of time. Because I was like, all right, you know, I, I'm sorting this and I've seen the same issue six times. And since I'm not working the issues, and I'm not getting the lapse between. I'm just going, okay, this belongs here, that belongs there, this belongs. You know, I, I get more of a digest effect. I can go, okay, hey, we've got, you know, in a four-hour block of time, eight tickets about this one thing. What's going on there? And I can start diverting my energy there to start the day.
0: You mentioned a kitchen experience for almost 20 years. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. I um, have often been fascinated about sort of the internal workings of kitchens um, and have read about it uh, a bunch, um, but haven't actually had that experience. But I'm curious how for you, are there some skills from that kitchen experience that translated to this new fast-paced environment you're in now? Uh, yes. I, uh, there are a couple of things like one, I don't get
1: the nervousness, the fear that people have in dealing with other people. Oh my, these people might be upset with me. No, I'm sorry. Once somebody's like held knives to you and there's fire around you and hot oil and I could die. <laughs> the, the dude from accounting's not going to bother me. But the other thing, the biggest part of it was I got, when I got to Linux Academy, pretty much got to build the support team from the ground up and we got to put it together the way we wanted to see it. And I decided I was going to go with the kitchen brigade style. And in that everybody who comes in starts at the bottom, no matter what you start as a dishwasher or a fry cook and you work your way through the kitchen until you get to a higher level. Nobody gets hired and, you know, I'm not going to go pick up a saute cook. Uh, I'm going to move my grill guy over and I'm going to move my fry guy to grill and I'm going to move my dishwasher over to fry and I'm going to hire a new dishwasher. That way, at any point in time, if one member of that chain falls out from below, like say the dishwasher calls in sick. Every single person on that team has washed dishes and they know what it takes and they can pitch in and do it. There won't be that ego of, oh, that's beneath me. I got hired to do saute.
0: No, you didn't. You got hired to do dish. You just got lucky enough to work your way up to saute. Wow. Uh, I can certainly see the advantage to that. Now, it's. An investment, right? That takes time to move people through all those stations.
1: It does take time. And when you very, at the very beginning, it is the hardest because what happens is most cooks, most chefs will bring an already built team. So they've been going through this time and time again. So they'll bring a team with them from the last place they worked and go, okay, I know you went through the same thing I did. You understand this. I don't have to reteach you. But everybody new has to go through that
0: It sounds as well like a part of it is accepting that the team is in constant flux, like everyone is constantly growing, and everything is constantly changing, and the people in the positions are constantly sort of rotating. so I could see how that would be helpful as well because we we tend to want to think in sort of binaries or black and whites and and simplify things like, okay, this you know person in. HR is always going to be the person in HR, but that's just not the reality of, of life. And I would imagine that kitchen experience, or at least that uh, system to work on that, uh, really pays back in, in many, many ways. Yeah, it, it makes everything very dynamic, but it also, I
1: firmly believe that if you really understand something, you can teach it. So it ensures that, hey, if you want to move up, you're going to have to train the guy beneath you so he can take your spot. So you have to be able to teach them what it is you do daily. And the guy above you, the place you want to go, he's going to teach you that. And everybody's wanting to do that because that's how they get out of the spot they're in. That's so awesome.
0: <laughs> I had never really gained that insight into how kitchens work. Like, I, I kind of gathered that there's a progression But it seemed to me almost like your 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 standard corporate progression, where it's just like, "Oh, I'm going to get the next thing." And but it sounds like the whole team supporting each other in this kind of pass it on approach. Uh, That sounds super powerful. It's funny. uh, Kitchens can be
1: the most vulgar, most offensive, ugly thing on the face of it, (laughs) but deep down everybody in there, the reason why they get like that is everybody in there knows it's going to be high stress. There isn't going to be a point in time where, all right, dude, we're all going to just hang out and watch YouTube together. No, we are all going to be working. We're going to be sweating. The conditions are crap. They just suck. It's hot. There's not a day that goes by where it's going to be cool in the kitchen. It's going to be 110. And The guy next to you, on either side of you, has weaponry that he brings with him daily, that he sharpens. And you need to make sure everybody agrees. Everybody gets along. We may not like each other outside of work, but when we're at work, we're here to work and we all love each other. (laughs) And it's a weird dichotomy that exists.
0: And you're all pointed in the same direction, right? You have no choice. So this well-oiled machine that is a kitchen needs to be that way. I would imagine that the stress is almost required to have it be at its most efficient. Uh, And everybody sort of plays an essential role from the bottom right to the top. Yeah, the hardest
1: part for me really when I got into a corporate environment was I'd become so accustomed to conflict resolution Starting and ending in about 30 seconds. <laughs> I just turn to the guy next to me and tell him, You know, you suck and you either need to go home or pick up the pace. His feelings aren't hurt. He just knows he has two options right now he can work and get paid or he can go home. But I can't turn to the guy next to me in, or in the cubicle next to me and go, Dude, you suck. Can you do your job or not? <laughs> because then he starts crying or he runs off to HR and I'm in trouble. And, you know, <laughs> But that, that conflict resolution in the kitchen is necessary because if we have to stop and talk about our feelings, everything in the kitchen comes to a standstill. And now what was a well-oiled machine that was cranking out, you know, 200 plates a night is now pushing nothing out of the
0: kitchen. And it's all stopped. It's from 100 to zero. There's no – not really much in between, is there?
1: No. <laughs> there, there is – you know, it's why it appears like a very coarse and – Pirate brigade is what I nor- what I hear a lot. It looks like a bunch of pirates <laughs> on a ship. But it's because they don't have a choice. They don't have time to consider feelings. Uh, you know, now, that was the, the kitchen experience I grew up with. I've heard that lately it's changed, and there has been a, a surge of a more calm and almost zen-like approach to kitchen running. I don't know how that would look because I can't imagine it. It just never never was a thing for me. I would be more comfortable with Gordon Ramsay yelling and throwing my plates on the floor than I would be if some guy looked at me and goes, this one just isn't right. I would like you to try again.
0: <laughs> that would, I would I'd be frightened by that guy. That guy would scare me because I'm waiting for him to explode. Or because – maybe you can't trust what he's saying. Like, is that really what he's feeling and, and where's the sense of urgency or severity at at the mistake, right? Mistakes in that sort of high stress environment are are almost like uh, completely unacceptable because it, it changes the entire dynamic, doesn't it?
1: But yeah, it definitely led me to, when I got here, when I got into tech, everybody's like, wow, how do you handle all the stress and all this? I'm like, nobody's yelling at me today.
0: (laughs) This is a cakewalk.
1: (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. This is this is calm. <laughs> I actually started developing an issue where I uh, I got so accustomed to background noise, I would have to turn things on so that there'd just be random noise. Not not in that sense like people like have like a show going. Like I want like construction equipment somewhere, banging pots and stuff.
0: Is there such a thing as a white noise from a kitchen, you know, that you can turn on and tune out the world? <laughs> maybe it's a market opportunity. <laughs> uh, I would say, just as a slight aside for anybody who's interested in, in reading up on that kind of kitchen experience, uh, I have two recommendations. And maybe maybe you can add to these if, if you've done that kind of reading. But um, I just came across randomly a book called Heat by Bill Buford. Uh, and he, so, you know, it. he describes his experience sort of uh, learning the kitchen uh, from the likes of Mario Batali and going to Italy and doing a bunch of crazy stuff. So that book is very entertaining. Uh, I would imagine for someone in the kitchen, as well as someone outside of a professional kitchen, you know, I've, I've never really well, had tiny experiences. But um, that book was fascinating to me and and totally agrees with everything you just said. <laughs> And I guess anything, you know, Anthony Bourdain is pretty well known for his kitchen confidentials and stuff. So uh, those are two fascinating reads.
1: Everybody I know when that came out was like, all right, who is this guy? Because this is this is spot on. You know, it it was almost like he was explaining our lives to us. <laughs> and uh, if, if you haven't read it, Medium Raw is also really good by him. Oh,
0: what's that like?
1: It's more of what happens when you become a hack, when you become me now, you know, hey, you used to work in a kitchen and now all you do is talk about it. You're not really a cook anymore. You're not one of us. Very odd feeling. You know, I'll, I'll go out with my girlfriend, we'll go to restaurants and I try and identify with the wait staff and the bartenders and the cooks and they can tell I know what I'm talking about, but they also know I'm not one of them anymore. And it's, do you do, it's like... It, you start to feel like a fraud in what used to be your own home.
0: I suppose it's a change of identity in some ways.
1: Oh, my fingers used to be like black with soot underneath them and burnt and calluses. And now I'm like, I don't know when I last got a manicure. You know? <laughs> the
0: things we put ourselves through,
1: eh? <laughs> I have been beaten. I've been bloodied. I've been burnt. And now I'm like, ah. I really should change clothes or something. You know, it, it, it the weird things that cross my mind now when at the time it was like, okay, I need to put cornstarch underneath my arm so I can stop the sweating.
0: Do you feel like you know you're still getting beat and burnt and and all of that but just in more of a sort of a mental capacity instead of that physical stuff? Like has it just transformed or is it gone completely? It has transformed, but it it and it's taken me a while to get used to it. The
1: the thing about Being in the restaurant is a lot of the beatings were up front, in your face. You knew what was coming. There was no power play. There was no backstabbing. Because if somebody was a backstabber, everybody called them out. Everybody knew. While there are politics in the kitchen, it's it's more like watching... uh, I can't remember what they're called in the UK, the uh, basically their version of senators and congressmen where they're all out there just making fun of each other openly. <laughs> Whereas I get into a corporate setting here and it reminds me of U.S. politics where everybody says nice things about each other, even though they
0: hate each other. I'm like,
1: uh, uh-uh. you don't like me. You don't like me. You can tell me that you're not going to hurt my
0: feelings. Interesting. It's like clear, direct communication versus sort of hiding the stuff between the lines. Yeah. Yeah. It's like everybody's afraid to have an
1: emotion because that makes them weak. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You just got to, you've got to get beyond letting the emotion control you and you just control your emotions. You go, hey, look, I'm angry at you because you did this, this, and this. And then when you've gotten that off your chest, you get to stop being angry. And it's like people don't know how to shut that off, I guess.
0: Maybe it resolves problems a little faster, too. How did you ever? switch from the kitchen into what you're doing now. Like Those seem, on the surface, like very different things, uh, despite the similarities and how one is really a gift to the other. But how how did that transition ever happen for you? Taking a step
1: back, uh, I I got to a point where my knees hurt, my back hurt. I was doing 18-hour days, and I was exhausted. I I, I started looking around. I was like, I'm not going to be Anthony Bourdain. I'm not going to be Jamie Oliver. I'm not going on food network and it doesn't look like I'm gonna get my own restaurant anytime soon so am I ready to do this for another you know 20 30 years working on the line possibly running a kitchen but never running the restaurant and uh and I and I decided I didn't want to do it it just it became that simple of like I don't want to do this I didn't have a college degree I have a high school diploma and that's it so I was talking with a friend, and he said, "Well, you ought to, you ought to take a shot at Linux. <laughs> Why? I don't know. I, you know. I know how to use a computer." He's like, "Yeah, you know more than most people. You can turn it on." I was like, well, It's a really low bar to set. He's like, "And you can read." So here, and he gave me this like tome of a book. It was a thousand page the uh, book called the Linux Bible.
0: Sounds appropriate as a first one.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what he gave me. He's like, "Here, take this." Go and learn it. Where do I start? You say start on page one and read through the book. Okay, so I start out with that. And then there was a group here in San Antonio called the Open Cloud Academy who were doing it was like a ten week boot camp where you go through you learn the basic lamp stack: Linux, Apache, MySQL, or MySQL depending on your preference, and uh, PHP. At the end of it, really, when I look back, I'm like, wow, of all the things I've learned, that should have taken me like three days, not 10 weeks. But knowing very little, it was great because I got to meet people and interact. And at the end of it, we were told everybody who goes through the program, and you had to pay for it. That's the other big thing. It did cost money. So it wasn't free. So you really wanted to apply yourself. But at the end of it, everybody would be offered the opportunity to interview with a major hosting company. That's
0: worth the money alone sometimes.
1: Yeah, and this is when my competitive brain kicks in because I'm like, okay, there's a class of 20. The class who did this before us, there were 20 there. Five got hired. All right, so I have a one in four shot. I've got to figure out who are the 15 people I can beat. And it it just became that. I was like, all right, I'm going to push through. How do you outrun a lion? All you gotta do is be faster than the slowest guy. That was all I was going for. I I don't want to be number 15. I will take number f- you know 16. I'll be, you know, that high. That's fine. I'll be the dumbest one of the smart group, but I'm getting hired. <laughs> we get our RHCSA certification, so the system admin. And I go through the interview process and I find out it's probably two years later. So two years after getting hired. I run into some of the people who had interviewed me and they're like, yeah, you you weren't hired for your skill. You were hired because you were just weird enough that we thought you'd be interesting to keep around. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll take it.
0: <laughs> That's sort of a backhanded compliment, right?
1: <laughs> and so from that, I was like, all right, you know, I, I, I did sysad work, sysadmin work for Two years, and then I went on to work in OpenStack deployments, so converting major companies' uh, data centers, their existing hardware, into cloud servers. And I did that for two years. And then just on a lark, I was like, you know, why not shoot for the big leagues? Linux Academy's hiring. Let's see if they'd give me a job running their you know, newly designed support team. Wow and oddly enough i got picked up for about the same reason we thought you were crazy enough to build this you can never really predict
0: that kind of stuff like you had a friend who had uh, you know enough clarity and um was generous enough to sort of hand you some pretty critical pieces of information and some support at a time when you know it sounds like that really turned your life around in a uh, or at least switched it directions um that took you to where you are here. Like how, could you, how could you have ever predicted that? But it's it's those people that come into our lives for for small moments and give us, you know, the Linux hint. Um, and then we just get hooked from, hooked from there. Brandon, I wanted to ask you if you have a, an ask of our community, if you want them to go see something, find something, learn about something, go try something. Is there anything you'd like to throw out there?
1: In general, if you have an issue, if you have a concern, if you have a problem... Don't sit on it. Talk, get it out there. The only way for people to help you solve the problem is if they know you have one.
0: That sounds pretty important. You got to raise your your voice uh, before anybody even knows that you need some help. Uh, I, I would assume that fits both in the support realm uh, and the bug tracking realm, but also just in life in general.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, if you hear that somebody has a problem and they've raised a concern, don't shut them out. You know. At least give it the the time and energy to look at it and establish where the actual problem exists. Because sometimes, you know, you might hear, oh, you know, the the lights aren't working. Well, is it the lights aren't working or there's no power? Or is there no power because you didn't pay the bill? You know, run it down a bit. Figure out where the real problem is. Don't just start treating symptoms.
0: So doing some investigation is uh, sounds like it's pretty essential. Yes, well, uh if you wanted to send people where they can say hi or that kind of thing, uh where would you send send people? Uh you
1: can find me on Twitter. I am at netcromancer N-E-T Chromancer, as in I revive dead connections.
0: <laughs> that sounds like a perfect place to send people. <laughs> <laughs> uh well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure and i've loved all these topics so uh thanks for chatting and um hopefully we get to meet in person i know you've been at linux fest in the past so hope maybe maybe you might be there this year i don't know uh or otherwise uh, we will see each other somewhere
1: yeah i'm all over the place i'll in fact be uh, if anybody's out there going to b-sides brian college station coming up in a couple of weeks and i'll be out at scale
0: in march as well nice so people can find you there that's great well thank you so much again and uh, thanks for your time